electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod, preventing another financial crisis. Former Fed Governor Kevin Warsh, a veteran of 2008, with a warning to the central bank on the eve of a critical interest rate decision. In the event things don't go well, we should use this moment to protect ourselves and protect the banking system. And a chemotherapy shortage. What's slowing down potentially life-saving drugs? Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The White House wants more regulation. The industry wants subsidies. I think if we're going to get to a solution, we're going to have to find a way to pay for quality and reliable manufacturing. All that today, plus a snarl on I-95, a CEO change-up at Illumina, a new outlook on oil, and J.P. Morgan settles with survivors of Jeffrey Epstein's abuse. CNBC's Eamon Javers has that story. Now, the settlement removes what had become a real headache for Jamie Dimon, who's one of the most iconic executives on Wall Street. It's Monday, June 12th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin, and we're all over the place this morning. Happy Monday. A gasoline tanker truck fire caused a portion of the highway to collapse in Philadelphia yesterday morning. I mean, I was worried, you know, nothing was underneath, at least. Um, You you can imagine, but Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro uh, will issue a disaster declaration today Uh, and to begin repairs, which are expected to take months to complete. Interstate 95 is the main north-south highway on the East Coast, stretching from Florida uh, all the way through Maine and into uh, Canada. I guess, you know, there's ways you can go around it, I guess. There there are. uh, I mean, I was looking this up because 95, if you stay on the turnpike, it doesn't even go over this section of it. You know, you can go down over the... Stay, just stay on the turnpike and go straight down over the Delaware Memorial Bridge, and you avoid this. It's just that there's so much right. traffic that's going to have to be diverted from what used to travel over this section of 95 that every roadway is going to be a mess until they get this up and running. I think you're right. Normally, I, I think that's the, the, the way we go anyway. We don't go right through. Yeah, I, I looked it up on the there. maps because I was trying to figure out myself. I'm supposed to be in Philly on Friday for a concert and was trying to figure out how this is going to impact our drive down. You're, you're giving a concert? <clears throat> yes, I'm giving a concert. You're no. going to a concert. I'm going you're, to a concert. Stevie whistling, Nicks, Billy whistling Joel. Whistling concert. Who? Stevie Nicks and Billy Joel. Friday. That's cool. It is cool, right? That, that is, is cool. That's, that's pretty something awesome. to look forward to. That's a TGI Friday. Yeah. That's right. playing at the, the, the football stadium, which is south of where all of this happened. If you take a look, this is a, a little further north of the city, so... It's not the part that the main 95 thoroughway that goes down, but it, it's going to be a mess. Where's the concert? Is, is it in it, the, it's the, at the football stadium. I once saw, uh, as, as a big Swifty, I once saw Taylor Swift in Philadelphia, yeah. actually. At yeah. the stadium, too? At the stadium. That, yeah, exciting. well, there's that, you need about 10 stadiums, so she could sell out <laughs> 10, probably. Right. These days. 
Now, Lubina said yesterday that its board of directors has accepted the resignation of the CEO, Francis D'Souza, just weeks after activist investor Carl Icahn failed to oust him. D'Souza's resignation is effective immediately, but he will stay on as an advisor through the end of July. The board's going to be considering both internal and external candidates in its search for a new CEO. Illumina, as you probably know, has been in a heated proxy fight with Icon, who owns a 1.4 percent stake in the company. Icon tweeted that he's happy about the recent events of Illumina, including the CEO transition and the election of Hologic CEO Steve McMillan as Illumina's new chairman. Um, only one candidate that Icon had been pushing for, one nomination to the board, he'd been pushing for three candidates. But, of course, this came... Um, amidst the the Hindenburg report that kind of went after Carl Icahn at the same time, and that probably uh, damaged him a little bit in terms of what he was trying to do. Um, D'Souza had come under fire in large part because of that acquisition of Grail that he'd been trying to kind of bring back into the fold against the wishes of regulators. And he was fighting this against regulators in the United States and over in Europe. Um, and that has been kind of seen as a failed uh, attempt to kind of bring it back in, a $7.1 billion acquisition. And uh, that may be what really pushed things over that and all of the damaging things that came with the Icon proxy. He's, he was on like two weeks ago. He's been on the show right. several many, times. many times, yeah. as has yeah. McMillan, Steve yeah. McMillan, who went to whole lot from, from Stryker. From Stryker. Yeah. Stryker. Stryker. D'Souza's on the board of, of Disney. I he's mean, still he's, on the look, board he's of Disney. Actually a very, yeah. He's a very, he's a, he's a very, I would argue, a very competent executive. Uh, if you look at actually the record of Illumina, it actually did quite well. I think really the miss here was this Grail deal and misreading, uh, and maybe it was impossible to misread it, at least or, or at least to read it properly initially, what regulators would do given the sort of activist approach that the regulatory bodies uh, all, all ultimately took. But, you know, when he first sort of went down this road with Grail, the, the, the kind of regulators that were in those roles were different. I mean, I think we've seen a real shift yeah, in, but in this, sort of just this how is just an the example. regulatory community is reacting to all sorts of transactions. Right. So it's, it's been, it's, it's it's been interesting to watch It's hard to fight City that. Hall, and it's really hard to fight regulators when they double down and say, no, this isn't going yep. to happen. Um, and it got to be a more kind of convoluted and convoluted fight along the way. And then you had Icon jump in, and it uh, I've really seen, stirred the waters. You know, I've seen op-eds written about how much sense it makes and how it could it could be just good for drug discovery and everything else to let these two do these things. I don't know whether it's non, you know, un, makes it less competitive for the whole field, but I, I have seen, it was in the journal op-ed pages, but it's like, why are, are you stopping this when it makes so much sense for Illumina to bring Grail back in? Well, D'Souza's point was that by stopping this, you weren't going to be able to help as many people as quickly as possible. It wouldn't exactly. be able to ramp up. Um, right. and then, well, who wants to do that? You know, it's the government. They've got their own stuff. Oil. Jobless claims. <clears throat> Remember claims above that level when we said, does this mean anything? Saudis cut, still can't hold 70, seriously? Uh, Goldman Sachs slashing. It's, that, that, that seems like there's a slowing economy. Yeah. I was at a, I'm allowed to say this, I was at a Ruth's Chris. Now, admittedly, it's at a mall, okay? <laughs> But um, business is bad. Business has been bad for the last six weeks. Really? Yes. Hmm. Now, Ruth's Chris is nice. It's not, it's you know, expensive. it's not like, yeah. it's not like an Andrew type, you know, New York, Manhattan type situation, but it's pretty nice. I mean, the, the what, premium What happened prices, six weeks ago? What, what did they nothing. say? Nothing. Just, Just business turned not nearly as good as it at this time of year as it normally is. Yeah. And I, I, what it made me think was that the 
pandemic, post-pandemic spurt was starting maybe to, to peter out. We've been waiting for that, for people to run. And, and the, the gentleman that, that, that I know that, that, I, that I talked to says that for a long time, people had money that they got from the government right. and they used it. When you have it, you use it. And you use right. it if you know, you're shopping at the mall. Um, and this is a very fancy, you know the mall. This is the best mall in the country. You've been there, I think, both of you probably at the Short Hills Mall, sure. yeah. right? Yep. Oh, well, uh, but now we got this. Goldman Sachs slashing its WTI oil price forecast from $89 a barrel to 81. It lowered its outlook for Brent crude from 95 to 86. The head of commodities research, our friend Jeff Curry, cited strong production from Iran and Russia. That's what I was going to say. Could be either you know supply or demand. In this case, I think it has mostly to do with increased supply. The report said that the additional cuts by Saudi Arabia are unlikely uh, to result in a price spike. J.P. Morgan says that it has reached an agreement to settle one lawsuit related to late disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Eamon Javers joins us right now with more on that. Eamon, what do you know? Yeah, good morning, Becky. Well, we don't have any information right now on the settlement amount here, but the attorneys for the Jane Doe's in this case had been ratcheting up pressure on J.P. Morgan as recently as Friday with a demand that CEO Jamie Dimon and other executives return for additional depositions in the lawsuit. Seems like J.P. Morgan really wanted to clear the decks of this case, and you can see why. Documents revealed so far showed an embarrassingly close relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, with one executive emailing Epstein from a hot tub on his private island and others brushing aside concerns of lower-level employees about the appropriateness of continuing to do business with him after his conviction. Now, as a benchmark, we know that Deutsche Bank settled a related case with a similar set of facts for about $75 million back in May. This one could have been north of that. We're going to have to wait to see if we can report out the number here. In a statement, J.P. Morgan said, quote, the parties believe this settlement is in the best interests of all parties, especially the survivors who were the victims of Epstein's terrible abuse. Meanwhile, a spokesman for the U.S. Virgin Islands attorney general said the U.S. Virgin Islands will continue to proceed with its enforcement action to ensure full accountability for J.P. Morgan's violations of law and prevent the bank from assisting and profiting from human trafficking in the future. Now, the settlement removes what had become a real headache for Jamie Dimon, who's one of the most iconic executives on Wall Street. Uh, when I asked him directly last week here in Washington if he was going to settle this case, he just responded curtly that he wasn't going to talk about litigation in the moment. So uh, clearly, this is something uh, that has been on Jamie Dimon's mind for a while now. This at least clears some of the decks. We'll wait to see whether these other cases get settled. But just as a little addendum here, guys, just within the past hour or so, uh, the USVI side has filed a new series of exhibits in this case on the docket, a whole bunch of new emails, internal JP Morgan emails, which they say show that more concerns were raised about Jeffrey Epstein than has been known publicly inside the bank. So this case hmm. ongoing, at least on that side of it. Back over to you. Hey, but if that's the case, if ratcheting this up, I mean, you would think if you're going to settle, you end up settling all the cases, all the litigation, just make it go away. Right. Yeah, I think J.P. Morgan is in a position now where they're going to have to settle across the board. Uh, but, you know, the, the devil's in the details here. And, and the question will be, what is that number? Uh, and I think USVI is uh, firing a shot across the bow this morning saying, hey, we've got more uh, ammunition here. We've got more to reveal about what happened here. So that could be, you know, if anything else, cynically, you look at it and say that's part of the negotiation. Okay. Eamon, thank you.
cheese will be next. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, the Federal Reserve kicks off its latest rate-setting meeting tomorrow. To hike? To pause? To skip? A stark warning for the central bank and the markets in a new Wall Street Journal op-ed from a former governor at the Fed, Kevin Warsh. We are unlikely to be in some durable, strong economy where we should be certain of the future. Uh, We should buy some insurance. There should be some risk management. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome uh, back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick uh, and Andrew Ross Sorkin and S&P maintaining uh, its recent um, 20% upward move into bull market territory. And uh, so far, the uh, market has surprised a lot of skeptics. Got yeah. a lot happening uh, this week, though, yep. in terms of uh, the CPI and but wacky Fed uh, meeting for another uh, couple of days. They're going to talk all day long about probably skipping. And then we'll see what the, uh, the commentary afterwards brings. But we'll have some, um, some commentary from a guy who, who probably is a pretty uh, strident Fed critic. We'll see whether he is today. Kevin Warsh will be on in just a second. All right, the Federal Reserve's next meeting starts tomorrow. Much of Wall Street expecting a pause in interest rate increases, but some still think a hike is on the table. Joining us right now to talk about that and much more is Kevin Warsh. He is a former Fed governor and a Hoover Institution visiting fellow. His latest op-ed for The Wall Street Journal talks about the fallout from the Silicon Valley bank collapse and says that without a change in policy, the U.S. banks could face a slowdown and need even more government support. Kevin, first of all, thank you for coming in and taking the time to talk with us today. I want to start with your op-ed, and and then we'll get to the Fed, because what I took out of this is, look out. You thought we were done with the problems in the banking sector. You could be completely wrong. You want to lay out the risks that we're still facing and what worries you about it? Sure, Becky. Uh, thanks very much for being here, uh, for having me with you. Um, so I might be too scarred by the 2008 financial crisis. I don't mean to suggest that we're on the front end of what we all experienced back then. But this is a time where markets are giving the Fed a free look. The markets have been benign since uh, the crises of five and eight weeks ago. And my sense today is they should do what we should have done during this period of calm on this day in 2008 and buy some insurance. The way I look at things, uh, we aren't in a, we are unlikely to be in some durable, strong economy where we should be certain of the future. 
uh, we should buy some insurance. There should be some risk management. In the event things don't go well, we should use this moment to protect ourselves and protect the banking system. And so what I outline in the op-ed is simply to suggest that the market structure of banking, with a few very large institutions at the top and 4,000 institutions below them, struggling to figure out how to have profitable business models, this, isn't a, this is not a great environment, and the Fed should do a couple of things to try to strengthen the banking system. So on the other side of this, we've got credit that can go to small and medium-sized businesses, and they don't have to go to extraordinary lengths if bad things happen. So let's just lay out the list of risks that you, that you tick, tick off. It's not anything we don't know, but it's probably worth looking at them again. Just the idea that you're going to see costs, deposit costs set to increase. I think you said it would siphon something like 60 to $80 billion at least off of profitability from the banks coming up. You've got a credit crunch that's facing us. You have the commercial real estate situation, and then you've got a Federal Reserve that could raise rates to 6%, and all of that could add up to some big problems and some rough waters ahead. Yeah, so, you, so you, you, you said it better than I can. Um, I just took it out there's, of your piece. <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a normal lag between the time that interest rates go up, and we see that in funding costs. We see that in deposit rates, especially when during crises, consumers say, I'm uncomfortable with my local bank. I better bring, it to, bring my deposits to one of the big, too big to fail institutions that might be charging only 30 or 40 basis points for the right to put cash there. I think there's a lag, and I think almost all businesses and households are going to be looking for higher yields. Um, about 70% of all deposits today, Becky, are non-interest bearing. I don't think that's going to last for much longer. So the banking business is going to be subject to greater risks. It's going to be harder to make money. Profitability could eat into capital. And the good news is over the last five weeks, banking stocks are doing well. Lending seems to be hanging in there. And my instinct is the Fed should use this window of opportunity uh, to try to make sure these other institutions won't just uh, survive but thrive. And so I suggest two things. Uh, Joe, as I came on the set, said that I was a, a strident critic. I'd like to think I'm a constructive critic, so the two <laughs> ideas are quite simple. Uh, take capital from all comers. Uh, there's a lot of capital on the sidelines from asset managers, private equity firms. They want to invest in the business of banking. And if we don't let them in the formal banking system, they'll be in the shadow banking system. The Fed needs to welcome them. This is capital that would be well-received. Even if bad things don't happen to the broad financial markets, we need these banks to be on their front foot to provide credit. And the second thing is also a big, important change in policy that I'm advocating for Chair uh, Powell and Secretary Yellen. They should allow some consolidation. Uh, they let the big banks get bigger and bigger. These small and medium-sized banks, Becky, they need to be able to compete. Let them do mergers. Let them get some greater franchise value. Get some scale and scope so they can compete against the big guys. Market structure is almost everything in every industry that comes on your show. And I don't think this market structure looks as sustainable as the Fed thinks. We just had Roger Ferguson on, and he thinks that the Fed is probably more likely to raise rates at least twice um, because of these concerns about inflation. But he shares your concern that the banking situation, the banking woes are, are, are not over. I'm certainly someone who shares a concern that the, uh, the all clear on the banking system is premature. I agree with that. I think there are banks that are going to need to have more capital for sure. We've seen that move very slowly. 
but the flip side of the Fed having to raise more is that it increases pressure in the sector. Uh, so I think it's important to call that out. It is part of the risk management challenge that the Fed is currently confronting. I forgot about Bear Stearns being the big one that went down in March of 2008. Stocks stabilized over the summer. Things looked okay. And it wasn't until the fall of 2008 that things looked much, much worse. And we saw the contagion effect. How, how big of a concern is this for you? Do you think the Fed should continue to raise rates? So, uh, so I love Roger. We overlapped for about a year on his last day as vice chairman of the Fed. He came to me with all these old files and he stuck them on my desk and he said, Kevin, these are your problems now. <laughs> so I always take what he has to say uh, quite seriously. Um, it's hard for me to judge what the risks are that we have a big banking crisis three or four months from now. It's easy for me to say this is a good time for risk management. The Fed seems strongly inclined to continue to raise rates. The last time that Chairman Powell threatened to raise rates to 6% was the Tuesday before this banking crisis in testimony before the Senate Banking Committee. And 48 hours later, we were in the soup. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there weren't a couple of dots in these forecasts that my friends at the Fed insist on keep publishing at their meeting later this week. And it's not obvious to me, markets have fully internalized that. So I take those risks seriously. And when you can buy insurance cheap, which is what the Fed can do by changing their regulatory policies right now, I'm all for buying it. Again, I, I share the consensus view, and I think it was Roger's view, that they're gonna stand down, not take any policy action this week. But I hope that they do more than that. I hope that they decide to be introspective. I think it's important that all institutions, especially in government, learn to live without an audience, learn to live without applause for a while. And I want them to be deeply introspective between now and the July meeting, both on bank policy and on interest policy. And I want them, when they raise rates next, to get more bang for the buck, to break the back of inflation. Instead, I feel like they keep running the same soundtrack and have to consistently do more which I think has put them, to say it plainly, in a place right now where price stability is telling them to go a lot more. And I wonder whether financial stability isn't telling them they've got to be a little more cautious. Do you think that the pause is, right now is the wrong move then? You would, if they're going to raise it, do it now? Get more bang for your buck? Is that what you mean? No, I think, th I think they're right to pause now. Um, you know, when these guys are more hawkish than I am, I guess we should all, we should all be thinking some. But the introspection mean you're not going to do anything for a while? No, introspection means you're going to do what George Schultz counseled uh, in his uh, great hundred years around here, which is think long. It means get off the hamster wheel. Stop talking data dependence. Stop running the old soundtrack. And see whether you can't come to markets with a more credible view that inflation on a global basis is a clear and present danger to the global economy. You keep showing up at these meetings with the same dots, the same forecasts that are viewed skeptically by broad market participants. You keep looking at backward looking information. I don't think that's the kind of, um, I don't think that's the kind of framework that's gonna break the back of inflation. So I think a pause here is right if it means you get to think harder instead of racing meeting to meeting. And instead of raising rate, rates 525 basis points, you race to raise them 600. We need to change the cadence, the motion, in order that households and businesses say, you know what, this central bank is different. They're going to break inflation and they've got a chance of achieving something uh, which is sustainable over the long term. Kevin, thank you for coming in. I'm trying to, obviously, some constructive criticism, but I, 
Pretty yeah, strident it's mostly too. strident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we didn't even get them on how long they stayed at zero. If you want to hear strident, thanks, guys. It's were an honor in, to be were, here. Were they introspecting back then? What the hell was that? Too much introspection back then. Maybe <laughs> not enough now. Oh, God. Kevin, thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, a concerning chemotherapy shortage, causes and possible solutions with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. FDA has increased regulation oversight of these drugs in recent years, requiring manufacturers to do more to make sure that these sterile facilities are state-of-the-art. That costs money, and the margin just isn't there to, to provide for that. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Joe Kernan. Stand Joe by. Stand by to wipe up to him in five seconds. Four, three, two, wipe up to him. His mic, cue. Treatment uh, complications across the U.S. as cancer center, uh, centers say that there is a chemotherapy shortage forcing doctors to switch medications and in some cases halt treatment. Uh, Joining us now, CNBC contributor, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he also serves on the boards of Pfizer uh, and Illumina. Um, how widespread is this? Which, which uh, compounds are, are we talking about, uh, Doctor, primarily? Well, right now we're talking about um, chemotherapeutics primarily and platinum-based chemotherapeutics. That's the most immediate issue because a plant that produced a lot of those drugs in India, Intest Pharmaceuticals, was shut down as a result of an inspection by FDA that found systemic problems with their manufacturing process and data integrity issues. But this is a multi-decade problem. Uh, I remember this problem when I was back at FDA in 2003. There were shortages of chemotherapeutics at that time. When I was there in 2019, we had shortages of IV um, drugs like morphine, things used for anesthesia. So the issue really relates to injectable generic drugs, sterile injectable generic drugs. And the problem is that manufacturing um, has the reimbursement has been driven down to the cost of manufacturing effectively. And that works fine when you're dealing with small molecules, pill-based drugs, which aren't that complex to manufacture. But when you're talking about sterile injectable drugs that are hard to manufacture where things can go wrong, and you're paying a margin slightly above the cost of manufacturing, it drives consolidation, it drives offshoring, uh, and it leads to problems. Companies are unable to invest in manufacturing plants and keep them state-of-the-art. And so when you get a shutdown, it leads to these kinds of distributed effects because the manufacturing has become so consolidated and much of it's offshore. And why wouldn't it lead to, to uh, you know, with all the cost cutting and, and pressure on, on margins, why wouldn't it lead to some type of shortcuts or, or you know, not adhering to uh, best manufacturing processes, especially in countries where we don't, we know nothing about the regulatory uh, agencies? Well, that, that, that's what's happening. FDA has increased regulation oversight of these drugs in recent years, requiring manufacturers to do more to make sure that these sterile facilities are state-of-the-art. That costs money, um, and the margin just isn't there to, to provide for that. So you've seen companies get out of this space. Teva announced that they were cutting 
generics out of their, their pipeline. Uh, another company, Lynette, also restructured, cut back on their manufacturing in recent months. And so you've seen companies get out. The average generic manufacturer loses about money on about 50% of their portfolio. So a lot of these are money-losing drugs. Uh, it's fine when it comes to pills again, but when it comes to these injectable sterile drugs, we're going to have to find a way to pay more if we want to have reliable manufacturing. And right now, the White House wants more regulation. The industry wants subsidies. I think if we're going to get to a solution, we're going to have to find a way to pay for quality and reliable manufacturing. And perhaps it's some kind of third-party certification that if a manufacturer can make representations that they have state-of-the-art manufacturing, uh, and they've invested in that and they have reliable manufacturing, they would be paid more under Medicare. This is really a reimbursement under government programs problem. And the Inflation Reduction Act is going to make it worse because it prevents these manufacturers, these, these generic companies, from taking price increases to offset the costs of reinvestment in their facilities. It also lowers the cost of these drugs. And so you're going to see fewer manufacturers getting into these generic spaces just because more of them are going to be price controlled now. Is it at this point... Scott, are, are we making any headway in, in targeted therapeutics? What, what, what's the percentage of chemo? Has it declined at all? It'd be nice to, to never use chemo if you could, if you could have targeted uh, therapies because it's such a, uh, you know, kind of a blunt force tool. That, it hurts, it hurts uh, normal cells as well, right? That's, that's the best we can do. And it there works in a replicative phase of, of it works during a mitosis. So hopefully it gets cancer cells, but it also... Uh, it hurts normal cells as well. That's why you get so sick. Yeah, look, you see a lot of the, more, the targeted drugs being used for secondary prevention and also for long-term maintenance in patients who have been diagnosed with cancer and successfully treated with upfront regimens. Um, the reality is that these chem chemotherapeutics are still the backbone yep. of uh, a lot of frontline regimens, even though the, those regimens also include targeted therapies. You know, that's becoming less and less common, but not that quickly. Uh, these platinum-based drugs, for example, the ones that are in shortage, are still the backbone of many, many important regimens. But it's not just chemotherapeutics. We're going to see this is a cyclical problem. It's chemotherapeutics today. It's going to be two years from now. We'll be talking about IV morphine. Then we'll be talking about IV antibiotics. This has been going on for at least 20 years that I've been around the FDA. We haven't solved it. These problems have only gotten worse over time. It's a structural problem in the marketplace, and we just haven't done what we need to do to solve and, it, and, which is right. pay and for the, quality. And the government responding to cost pressures in many cases makes it worse. That's right. I mean, many drugs are priced too high, but there are also drugs that are priced too low, particularly these sterile generic drugs. Right, right. That, that you don't hear much, uh, but that's, that's the fact of the matter. All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you. We are uh, out of here in about uh, nine seconds. We're still, Andrew, we're holding on to paltry gains. Fed meeting starts yep. tomorrow, CPI tomorrow. Don't miss it. And that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes, analysis, interviews from our TV show right in your ears, Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. That's it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.